the black futurists. We don't talk about the past too much unless we're talking about the futurists of the past. We talk about what will happen next. We talk about our view of the future and how what we're doing today impacts or builds or destroys that future that we envision tomorrow. I don't have grandchildren, but I hope to have grandchildren one day. I hope to leave a better world than I inherited. And so the work that I do, the work that my friends and colleagues and people I meet along the way do is critically important. Today, we're going to talk about gun violence in America, but not as a response video to yet another school shooting, because that would, in my mind, prioritize one over any of the past school shootings. We're going to talk about the problem overall. And this all stems from a conversation I was having this morning while on my morning walk, and it made me think of our guest today. The Black Futurist. Okay. So first, let me step up and say, welcome to the show, Dr. Roddy Ferguson. What's going on, brother, man? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. Dr. Ferguson, what is your degree? I have an undergraduate in mechanical engineering. You and I went to school together at Howard University. But we suffered greatly down in the Lewis K. Downing <laughs> building. Uh, I have a master's of arts of teaching because I, I figured uh, I needed to do something a little bit easier and a little less stressful. But then I ended up getting my PhD in education, and I teach martial arts as well as health and wellness, as you do. And I've taught exercise science, kinesiology, and nutrition at the university level as an adjunct professor at the University of Tampa and University of Central Florida. I'm also a martial arts professor. I am a fourth degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and a sixth degree red and white belt in Judo, having gone to the Olympics in 2004, a few national championships and competing at the, the world championships in Jiu-Jitsu, placing a second and at the Pan American Championships in Judo place in third. So I've been around the block. I've had an opportunity to train people in the CIA, the Secret Service, the Navy SEALs, the Royal Bahamian Police Force, as well as Her Majesty's Prison Ministry, which is basically the equivalent to our correction officers in the United States. That's fantastic. Dr. Maurice Stolberry, co-host of the yeah. show. What is your education? Uh, first of all, I want to see Dr. Ferguson go up against my man from the Detroit Urban SWAT Tactics, my man with the mustache, be disarming folks with the gun. I, I, I want to see what will happen when them two go up against each other. We have no time to waste. <laughs> <laughs> D-Bray, what is hey, your degree? Just give me the degrees. Come on. Run them out. Like. Like y'all, I was in the Valley. I went from Lewis K. Downing in engineering across the street. I wanted a little bit easier time. So I got a degree in biology from Ernest Everett Just Hall at Howard University. So undergrad is in biology. My master's is also in education. It's in social foundations of education, specifically within multicultural education. And my PhD is in curriculum and instruction from the University of Washington. And my focus in curriculum and instruction is science curriculum and also teaching and, and that part of teaching science and uh, fixing the ways that, that we teach science. So my focus was also social foundations within my PhD in curriculum and instruction. And, and like Dr. Ferguson, I'm also a martial arts instructor. I've been a wrestling coach. This is uh, year number 25 for me as a high school wrestling coach coming and up. A very, and a very uh, good coach. 
Hey, I appreciate that, man. None of my accolades yes, came on the mat. I'm a much better coach, thankfully, than I was as a competitor. Yeah, but I have won three individual coach of the year awards. This this past season, man, the most thing I'm really proud of, our girls were 13th overall in the state. So we're about to get this little public school program in the hood, in quotes, in Seattle and have a top 10 girls program and top 25 boys program. So That's fantastic. Let me premise this whole conversation. I am a creative that has also acquired the skills and practice of problem solving as an engineer, as you both have. I, I view the world through that lens. In my sleep, I look for problems and create solutions. It's what I do. And we've seen gun violence in America as a big problem. And I'm a gun owner myself. In this very room I'm standing, I've got two firearms that are mine, that I use quite regularly, that I enjoy. I use for target practice and for hunting. Everybody's aware that these guns are here. And as I've slept on this issue of this recurring gun violence we have in the States, I've come to a conclusion that there is no solution. There is no on-off switch. There is only mitigating the problem as, as we find other, in other areas of life. But I did have a conversation point that I don't have answers to. I'd love to talk about gun stuff, but I also like to talk about the environment that creates uh, this unsafe environment for us in mm -hmm. schools. So I have a question to start off with you, Dr. Ferguson, and that is, what happens if martial arts becomes compulsory in schools? What would happen to a community if martial arts became compulsory for all proper age students? So the, the thing about martial arts is that it falls under the fine arts. I think that where martial arts loses its flavor a little bit is where wrestling picks up on it, especially in the United States. I think we run away from violence. And one of our mutual friends, Stefan Senegal, explained this to me when he was explaining his artwork to me years ago. He said, violence is part of the process of life. He said, you come in via a stabbing. He said, it's violent when you come through the wound process. He said, when you get here, you're in a violent community. He said, you learn how to mitigate violence during your lifetime. And when you die, the act in and of itself of not breathing anymore will be violent. And we don't look at violence as something that we need to learn how to mitigate and learn how to live with. The beautiful thing about the sports like wrestling and judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and boxing is that you get to learn how to function within violence without anybody dying. Mm -hmm. And then you understand, unlike movies and unlike cartoons, that when you do things have a huge consequence to them and for them, and not only for the other people, but also for yourself. Most people who do some of these things have never experienced a huge amount of mitigated pain. And that's what you get through the process of training. like. I am right now, I'm 5'8". I competed at 220 pounds. I'm like 245 pounds now. And as good or as bad as I think, I, I've been beaten down by guys who have been 140 pounds, 160. Mm -hmm. And my willingness to start a fight or to start a problem, you guys have been around it's gotta me. It's got to be low. It's got to be diminishing. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, it's diminished because I've been beaten down so much. I've, I've been humbled from the process of violence mitigation. And I think that in our society, 
a lot of parents don't want their children to deal with confrontation. Even in a dojo, uh, I have kids cry. My parents say, well, you put them on the spot. I said, as opposed to what? Digging up a hole and letting them jump in and hide? I said, anytime you ask a kid a question, anytime you put them out front, anytime you have them do something, anytime they step on the line in front of somebody else, they're going to be on the spot. And they need to learn how to perform and, and be put on the spot without losing their stuff. Yeah. And I remember my mom, t- she says, I'm tired of hearing about all y'all young people and trauma. She said, trauma is part of life. Stop telling me you've been traumatized. Everybody's been traumatized. She said, this is my mom now. She's 70. She says, you've been traumatized. So what? She well, says, now, trauma ready, is now what? You've been traumatized now. Which now what? So you're right. You've been traumatized now. What? So how, how do you work through the trauma? Let me tell you something about wrestling practice and judo practice and jujitsu practice and boxing practice and MMA practice. 5 30 to 8 o'clock or 3 45 to 6 o'clock every night it is some trauma going on in there i just got off the, the squat rack doing front squats right before this i am still sweating i was traumatized for the last hour before this call traumatized. <laughs> most people don't learn how to deal with pressure and problems my son can tell if i'm on the mat and Coach Mo and I are wrestling. He cross-faced me. He goes across my face and cross-faced me. I tell him, I say, oh, man, I love it. I love it. I appreciate it. That's how I know you love me. <laughs> because I enjoy the nature of the, the physical combat. Most people run from violence, but they're really good at issuing it. They right. want to issue out violence, but they issue it out so readily because they've never felt any. I mean, I mean, in a sense to learn, I don't mean in somebody got beat as a kid and they got, you know, traumatized and they were um, sexually abused and now they're going out. And, and I'm not talking about things that require therapeutic modalities. I'm talking about being in what you said in compulsory sports or arts or situations where you learn how to deal with trauma and how to deal with violence and how to be a, a contributing person in society. You both have created or participated in centers for families to participate in martial arts. And for years you've done this. Roddy, you own a judo dojo in Tampa, Florida. Maurice, you've been coaching uh, wrestling, as you said, for 25 years, including South Florida and now in the Seattle area. What is the change of that community after participating in these programs for years? What is the change we should see over a decade of participating in Ferguson's judo Dolberry's wrestling practice. One of the things that people forget when they say they, oh, they see Roddy Ferguson. Oh man, that's that dude's judo Olympian, jujitsu practitioner. Oh, they go coach D. He's a long time wrestler, wrestling coach. I wouldn't mess with him. The main reasons why folks don't mess with people who are trained in martial arts is not because those of us who have a significant amount of training expertise in martial arts walk around like, yo, I'm going to whoop your ass. It's because when we get to the point where we feel like we have to apply our martial art somewhere outside of the dojo, we know shit's gotten real because we have had the opportunity to if you've been at Tampa Judo, you've had your elbow snatched on, so it feel like it's coming out the socket. If you've been in the White Center Warriors Wrestling Club room, you've had your head folded straight towards your crotch, so you are looking at whatever genitalia you have or don't have. You are, and you have been at the mercy of someone else's physical violence. And so to subject someone else, that's the key. 
in that same notion, because you have that understanding, you know what it's like. You've been there before. It takes you so long to get there. But when you do get there, you realize this has to end violently, quickly and traumatically for the person who has started it. That's not to talk shit. That's just because that's just the nature of how martial arts works. And it's the nature of fighting with a martial artist. And so now you take that and to answer your question, B, if now you get groups of kids, parents, adults who are used to being in a safe, as uh, I love Dr. Ferguson called it, mitigated violence, right? You're in a place where there are other experts and people who care about your well-being and you're not in a situation where you're out in the world. It's a controlled physical space for combat and violence. When you're in that space, you get such a respect for violence itself in conflict for martial arts and how to go about it. And then finally, for your own safety and well-being, that you then start to push that out towards others. And you want to be more of a caretaker for your community because you understand on a personal level, because you are at the dojo or at practice from 530 to 8, and you had your ass whooped. And now you know what that's like. And so you want to mitigate violence in your community. You understand how to engage with people in anger that stops short of violence. And so to me, a community that is engaged in compulsory martial arts is a community that has a greater respect for trauma, for violence, understands trauma and violence and what it can do on an individual and a group basis. And I think is ultimately safer. And it's because of self-defense and self-defense doesn't start with the ability to shoot or whoop someone's ass, it starts with simply looking out and understanding what happens when you engage in trauma and violence to yourself and to other people in your community. Let me tell you something. One of the main things that you get, and I think if you really look at the profile of most of the individuals that create or cause some of these situations, they're not on teams. Mm-hmm. They're not in groups. Mm-hmm. And the reason being, when you go to the military, the first thing that they do is you suffer together. Joint suffering breaks down the race barriers, socioeconomic demographics. It, it breaks down everything. You, if when me and you and and Doc, when we go, if we go do a thirty mile hump, okay, whatever we was arguing about at the beginning of that hump, by the time we get to mile twenty two, we're not arguing about it anymore. What we're talking about is, hey, do you have any more rations of water? How many gels do you have? You got an extra pair of socks, man. How many hours do we have? How much daylight do we have left? Where we at on the map? Like, we're not arguing about that stuff anymore because there's other things that supersede that through the joint suffering. When you suffer together, when we finish that 30 miles, now we become brothers because we've done that thing together. We've finished the season together. We've endured together. When you don't have that joint level of suffering and that you have to suffer. People practice and there's bear crawls and there's running and there's vomiting and there's crying and like you have to and there's bleeding. I tell my kids practice doesn't start. Rufus, come and he'll tell you. He'll tell you exactly what the phrase is. Tell him practice does not start until somebody what? Bleeds. Until somebody bleeds. D1 Rufus, we're proud of you, son. Yes, thank you. All right. I can hear listeners thoughts now saying, what in the hell is B talking about? Is he talking about like the equivalent of issuing bow and arrows to everyone who has a gun and like regressing technology? Is he talking about teaching people how to Bruce Leroy and catch bullets in their teeth? How is this related to gun violence? And let me tell you how it's about environment. Okay. 
environment is a huge factor in any ability of an organism to change or a community to change. So I'm saying in the case where someone is feeling outcast, dejected, set apart, or is not being watched regularly or in regular communication, would an activity like this create more of an environment of at least monitoring beyond monitoring a sense of belonging and a sense of connection? What yes. And let me tell you, let me tell you the main thing, B parents come into my facility and they say, I want to see how little Johnny likes it. I said, ma'am, this place is not for you. I said, cause your son doesn't make any decisions here. He doesn't make him in your house for here. And he doesn't make him here for here. I said, you and your husband, you all decide whether you want him to come to practice or not. You sign the agreement and you pay the money and then you grab him by his neck and you put him in the car and he goes to practice. All this, I don't, I want to see, but like, he's not going to like, this ain't no playground in here. We don't have toys. We're not playing no games. It is not fun in here. It's deliberate practices. There was not one day of engineering. There was not one day, B. I don't give a damn what you say. There was not one day of an engineering class that was fun. Right. It was not one. It's, it's not fun. It's cool to say I graduated from engineering, but it's not a day where it's, it's, it, biology is not fun. Chemistry is not fun. It's a mountain to climb. Yes. But here's the thing. The parents don't want their children to experience these hard things. They, they don't understand how hard it is because they can't even fathom. I've had kids in my place that I felt like I was going to die, which is a great feeling to have, whether you believe it or not. So a kid who says, I feel like I'm going to die, they are a little closer on the continuum to understanding death than a person who's never felt like that. And one kid will a lot quicker pull a trigger on you than another kid. Mm-hmm. Because they understand, they, they can equate what death and dying feels like for them and what it would feel like for somebody else. The kids in my dojo have seen the ambulance come for people. Right. They, they're having panic attacks because they never experienced or so they're having panic attacks. When you have a panic attack with me, I'm just going to step over you and go to the next person. You got to leave here sometime. It might be today. <laughs> I'm sure there's a little more to but, it than that. There might be some first aid or some evaluation involved. I don't want to get yourself in trouble here. Maurice, let me ask no, you. No, no, many- no, no. Listen, ahead, listen, listen what, I do, what, I, what I do is be, if, they get, if somebody says, I can't breathe, I immediately call 911. That's immediate from coaching. It's immediate. Mm-hmm. One guy said, don't call 911. I said, no, no. As soon as you say, I can't breathe, even I know you're breathing, I call 911. That's it. You and 911 and that bill, y'all figure that out. <laughs> but, as soon, but as soon as you say, I, I, I can't breathe. I'm going to call 911 for you. But th- listen, the process of martial arts and suffering, I don't mean to pivot because I know this is your show and I, I'm black and I believe in the future. So I believe I, I can take over a little bit. Don't pivot Every too engineering far. problem. Yeah. No, I ain't, ain't going to go too far because you're not, not going to let me. Every engineering problem, man, is basically project problem agitates off. So if we look at the problem of gun violence, we have to agitate it enough, B, till we come up with a solution. And this goes along with the martial arts thing, too, because of the grind. They think that there's a time period on how long the agitation is supposed to go on for. We got to agitate until we come up with a solution. People get fatigued from the agitation and they leave. They divorce themselves from the process. Now, understanding that sitting in that grind for a long period of time, that 60 minute grind, that 90 minute grind, that 120 minute grind, like sometimes the agitation process just takes a lot longer 
than what you think. We talked about this earlier today, B. If there were no guns available from an engineering standpoint, there were no guns, there'd be no there'd shooting. Be no gun violence, right. Yeah. No, no gun violence. So with that, in harmony with that, if there's less guns, there's less gun violence. If there's more guns, there's more gun violence. Now, people say, that's not true. Okay, fine. If there's less guns, there's less shooting. If there's more guns, there's more shooting. That's a fact. Then the argument then comes into play. That's not going to stop criminals from having guns. No, it's not. But by default, if there's less guns, there's less shootings. And a random event of a criminal having a gun and you getting shot is, is, is unlikely. Criminal has a gun and you get robbed, you get your stuff taken, possibility. Criminal has a gun and just shoots, shoots. Unlikely. Yeah. That, that situation that happens in the schools, when those people come in there, the, the, the fix on the other side of the scale would be to arm all the children and the teachers. Create even more of a prison-like environment in schools, which is not fantastic. And I know, Mo, you'd rail against that. Guaranteed, because that's one of the issues that we're having now. Uh, fellow critical race theorist David Stovall was just talking about this. He was saying that it's not even a school-to-prison pipeline anymore. Now you really have a school and prison synthesis where they have become functionally the same unit. So you put metal detectors, armed security guards, locked individual cells where people have to go and stay for 48 minutes during their class period. And then they are escorted through hallways and then immediately go into another locked room where there is an armed person who is there for their security and others you're creating a prison, right? And so it's it's actually school to prison synthesis is what happens when, when you're doing things like that. One of the points I was going to make to to build on what Dr. Ferguson was talking about, one of the things we also confuse is this notion of what a criminal is, right? The idea that they're just, it's like a video game. And every time you run across this person in the video game, they're a bad guy. And how do you know they're a bad guy? Well, they're shooting at you. And then you shoot back. <laughs> in real life, criminals and bad guys or bad people don't operate that way. A criminal is also the person who will go home, take care of their children, brush their teeth and go to bed at night. Criminal is not a disposition. People are humans and then they can create crimes. There are people who, yes, have it within them to go in and shoot up a school building. Those people should never have guns. And at the same time, I don't see a way in our current paradigm to keep them from having guns, but they're not criminals. That 18 year old kid, for example, that Rob Elementary who walked through in such a horrendous, he didn't do anything illegal. As far as I know, he had never committed an illegal act until the moment he pointed that gun at the child and pulled the trigger. So yes, we can describe him as a criminal, but what does that mean? Like criminal? Oh, we know who. All right. So yeah, like we can, (laughs) we can figure out who's going to commit crimes because that person is a criminal villain. They have a black hat on and they automatically walk outside and start shooting you like a video game character. That kid wasn't a criminal until he pulled that trigger. And so without an understanding that people aren't criminals and that crimes like this can be committed, I say this all the time, the the violence that guns create and the ability to perforate another human being with bullets, it, it allows those thoughts that may be transient, right? The man, I want to whoop that dude's ass circling back as a martial artist. I'm sure Dr. Ferguson, he's one to choke people in traffic. But you understand, this is not how we go through life. I'm not a criminal. My disposition is good, upstanding citizen. I want to help people. I want people to understand the trauma of violence. And so I'm a coach in my community. And so when you bring that mentality into the public, 
it diffuses the notion that I am going to, for example, commit this criminal act. Not that I'm going to become a criminal, but it diffuses the desire to create, to cause, or to engage in a criminal act, especially with the firearm, because you've been choked out before and you know what it feels like to die. And you don't want that to happen to an eight-year-old in their classroom. I want to say this because there's correlative value on this, not causative, but it's still correlative. We have gotten to this point where we say that physical violence is a low level of functioning for human beings. I highly disagree. Mm -hmm. I think that if we don't have the, I'll see you at at three o'clock after school behind the portable for a fight anymore. We don't bring the boxing gloves to the school in the morning to fight in the gym anymore. We have disagreements. We don't get the fight in the schoolyard anymore. And just what Coach Mo just said is that you bypass all those options that come before shooting somebody. But those options aren't readily available anymore. So you jump from nothing to grab a gun. You can't tell somebody, hey, after school today, three o'clock, goddammit, it's me and you. And then everybody circles around and they start fighting and they pull out the cell phones. You can't do that. People don't understand that there is educative value in play and fighting, whether you believe it or not, it does, it does, it is in the realm of play in terms of educative value. What does fighting provide you from an educative standpoint? It allows you to know that in some cases, might makes right is a real thing. It's a real thing in politics. It's a real thing in socioeconomics. It's a real thing in divorce court. It's a real thing in litigation because some people can just sue you into the dirt and make your life miserable because they can afford to pay them fee for their attorney and you can't keep up. Some people just have enough money to make your life miserable. Some people are just bigger than you. Some people are stronger than you. Sometimes you're a mom and pop shop and Home Depot comes in and there's just nothing you can do. And if that happens, instead of you getting your gun and walking in and shooting the manager of the Home Depot because you feel like your life is ruined, you need to find another way to deal with those situations. But if you don't have practice in dealing with those other situations, why do we have a situation now when people get fired, they got to be escorted out by security? (laughs) (laughs) They might just wild out. No escalation. As opposed to this happening in 1960, 1970, 1980, and people just left. Hey, John, we got to let you go. All right, man, I appreciate it. I'm sad. You might argue. But somebody say, all right, today, 2022, all right, man, I got to let you go. Let who go? My man, you let me go. You don't even go. You don't have to worry about going back home. You let me go. They mean that shit. Because in the glove compartment of their car, there is a Glock that they are going to get. And they will be waiting in the parking lot for you. They have Googled your address. And if you think you're going to fire that person and ruin their car note and ruin their mortgage payment, and they got to go home to their, their, their significant other, can't say why I know significant other. They got to go home to their significant other and tell them I lost my job. It's not going to happen, my man. Right. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Let me jump back to environment for a second. For a person who's not had that escalative experience of escalating and de-escalating, For someone who may have experienced bullying, I feel like my theory at a solution is, again, what if we made martial arts compulsory in a particular community, a particular school? How would that school or community be moved? And the question that Jamie came with was, aren't you making everybody 
better? Like, what about the bullies? Aren't they getting better at doling out violence and punishment? If someone is a bully walks in your dojo, their parents signed them up along with the weak kid in your dojo or in your wrestling class. A year from now, how are those two kids changed? Oh, you, you just get the small kid to beat his ass. Simple. Over a year. It's, it's, oh, simple. It's funny. And it don't take that long in our wrestling room. And in particular, when you get bullies, boys or girls in our wrestling room, there's somebody in our wrestling room who we can have them drill with, who's a 14-year-old freshman who is 40 pounds less than them, who will fold their ass up like a cheese omelet. And it's interesting. Oftentimes, what we see as bullying is is a tit for tat that's happening between teenagers. Now I'm going to talk for from the high school and teenage standpoint. It speaks to who the assailant was that committed this school shooting at Rob Elementary, right? 18 year old kid. It is that age person and that bully who gets tested immediately. And even if they don't stick it out, I give the one week challenge. I'm like, listen, this is Coach Ferguson said this isn't fun. What you're going to like and what's going to be fun is who you become afterward. When you feel stronger, when you feel more athletic, when you're walking around and you feel more comfortable just because you're like, oh, man, I don't have to be bullied because, yeah, if I needed to, I could double leg this cat right now. But no, nah, I'm good. When you talk about how does sports raise your self-esteem, and that's what it does. It gives you the confidence. Well, people to talk understand. about that. The easy answer is to talk about the kid who's being bullied and how they change. But I'm asking the opposite question question what if the bully comes into the thing is he also curved over time of course bully is only a bully because there's a delta there's some type of delta created that allows the bully to be a bully inside of a dojo environment the delta is based upon technique a bully comes in with zero technique the delta that the bully has in school doesn't exist in the dojo and and most of the people who are in the dojo have been there long one two three years they have no fear of somebody because somebody is bigger than them they can't wait to slice and dice up a kid that's bigger than them are you, you either of you guys gun owners yes recently okay i had to wait till no. i got older my testosterone level went down <laughs> yeah, I, me, I know I got a problem. All right. I, I go to therapy. I know I got a problem. But let me go back to the Delta. When a bully steps inside of the dojo, a bully becomes what he bullies. He becomes that immediately. And that's the effective change that occurs inside of that domain. And remember what I talked about on that 30 mile hump. Over a period of time, everybody becomes the same as the mileage increases. Yeah. As we suffer together as a group, we have that group loyalty. We have, we're in the same group co- cooperation. We suffer together as a group. The bully becomes a, a member of the team. That's it. There's that expression that people use and say that the child who's ostracized or doesn't feel love from the village will burn it down in order to feel the warmth. And this is what you have yeah. happen, right? In a wrestling room, the bully who now gets broken down and is literally laying down on the mat holding their leg because they're so tired and they're broken physically and mentally. And then one of the victims of bullying comes over to them and grabs them by the hand and says, come on, get up. You got another one. You can do it. And there's an immediate switch. And now the bully is feeling the warmth from the village that they needed in the first place. Now they don't feel like they need to burn it down. We use these little expressions all the time. You need a hug. You need Jesus. Now they're in the group where they can actually get the hug and they can go to church on the Sunday, the mosque on Friday, the synagogue on Saturday. So it takes the bully 
and consistently I have watched as a coach over, you know, a quarter of a century of coaching, much less my time involved in it. I've watched bully after bully come into our room and not only be humbled, because it's one thing you want the bully to be humble. But the second thing that happens to them is they get accepted and they get a level of acceptance that they haven't experienced before. It starts to turn the amount. Absolutely. That compassion that they feel, they develop an empathy because again, now this kid literally is got a triangle to is choking me and has the opportunity to make me go to sleep. And unless coach said, let him up and you know what, then they get it. One, they understand, wow, this person's life is in my hands and I trust them Two, They trust me. And like coach said, they learn to stop because you learn, oh, wow, this feels precious. This is my teammate who picked me up off the mat. The same one whose neck I'm squeezing on right now picked me up when I felt like I was going to die. That probably has to be the the best thing that we said today that you talked about today, Doc, was there's a portion of the wrestling process, judo process, the martial arts process where when we're doing a certain move, my life is literally in your hands and I'm counting on you to take care of me. I had the situation happen yesterday. I had to tell a kid to Evan, you cannot get tired to the point where you don't care about executing the throw. If you just fall down because you're tired, their head hits the mat directly and they can break the neck. I said, you have to, no matter how tired you are, I said, you have to finish the throw, my man. And you get to the point where you understand I can't be selfish I got to have some compassion for other people. If you've ever watched people do submissions for the first time, I don't know if you've ever been choked before. I'm Coach B. I've been on the mat. We're doing submissions. There's a point where people who do that for the first time, man, they panic. And some people cry. And not to get really super, super personal, but we all know the statistics of, of situations that happen with women. And there are portions of the mat work, judo, and jiu-jitsu process where there can be a certain type of position that can be triggering for something that happened to a woman before. And I've had to stop before and walk people outside because they revert back and they start scratching that their bite. And they're just not used to not having control over their body or being in a position where I am helpless. Like most people don't get on a mat or get in front of somebody with the understanding that I'm helpless. Like if I, if I stand in front of Gable Stevenson right now, I'm helpless. I'm literally at the mercy of whatever he would like to do. And I have to be okay with that. And that is where you want somebody who suffered before, somebody who understands the process of violence and somebody that has compassion. You want that person who wields that weapon to have that level of compassion. And what happens is, there it is. We put a, a weapon in the hands of people who lack compassion. Yeah. Let me iron out and wrap up here. Let me tell a quick story that it all makes sense. I had a buddy who was staying out of the country somewhere at Airbnb. And he had spiders in his place. And it was a persistent problem. We're to the point where he was uncomfortable. And the exterminator came. And the exterminator said, look, I can spray the place now and many of these spiders will die, but the spiders will come back because you don't have a spider problem. You had a spider bait problem. This environment will always attract spiders. 
because this is the conditions they like. You don't have screens on the window. Spiders are going to come because the food is here. The light is here. The water is here. The warmth is here. You, this is the issue. And this is why I thought of you guys today. We've got this environment where people are okay with just on switching extreme past violence, murder. And the gun is the quick, fast tool that's being used. And I'm wondering what is the environment that is the substrate for this issue? Do we have an issue where some of these people are being bullied regularly? And instead of maybe dealing with the person, let's deal with the environment that creates that person by creating some monitoring, by creating some compassion in their life. So the key in what I asked you today was what happens in a school or a community where martial arts practice becomes compulsory? The, the real powerful word in that question was compulsory, which means everybody must show up. And according to what you guys have told me, everybody is changed as a result of the process. So I want to thank you guys for helping me not even solve the problem, but just run out a, ch a chain of thoughts. I know I've got uh, two of the best minds in the game here to do that. And it was super important. And I'm so glad you took the call. Before we go, our good friend, Dr. Roddy Ferguson is in a movie recently. Roddy, why don't you tell us about that? I want to know all about that movie. What is the spiel? I'm in the movie uh, Paperline. I was also an associate producer. It premieres on June 18th at Tampa Theater. And it is a martial arts fraternity movie. So it's a different spin on the fraternal process. Uh, where you have to do martial arts in order to get in. But we address some things that, in terms of the, 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 the Panhellenic fraternities, in terms of the Divine Nine, we address some of the hazing, we address some of the, the social issues inside the movie. The movie is about 45 minutes, and it's our desire to pitch it to a couple outlets to make it either a long-form movie or create a series. But it's absolutely fantastic. It's my first time acting. I didn't know how much was um, involved in the process. I had to call our my colleague and friend and my frat brother, Leonard Robertson from, from Howard so he can help me out a little yeah. bit. And a, and a yeah, wrestler. So, yeah, and he wrestled at Howard, that's right. I had to call Leonard and have him give me some tips, man. I didn't realize how long one take took. Mm. He said, hey man, it's no different than judo. He says, just a bunch of reps. And it was a really good process watching it from start to finish. My daughter has a small non-speaking role. She was in it too. And uh, man, it, it was just really fantastic. It's something I really wanted to do. I'm on IMDb now, so I feel good about that. And the movie will be out on June 18th. That's fantastic. Is there a way that we who are not in Tampa can also watch? I will have that information after the premiere. The producer has the ultimate rights to how it'll be doled out in the future. And that's going to be based upon the feedback that we get on the premiere. Fantastic. Hey, man, that's a wrap. You both get 60 seconds, so here you go. I was just going to say, I love Dr. Ferguson just name dropping. So Leonard Robinson, for those of y'all who uh, don't know, if you watched Insecure and, and you like Torian, the, the ball head brother who's the lawyer, getting with uh, Molly, that's Leonard Robinson. So yeah, dude with some chops, know what he's doing, been in the you know, business for a while. And we could do that, man. Like That's just our dude that we went to school with, man. That's one of the things I love about this network through you know the Black Futurist podcast. Ultimately, my concern is that right now we have to increase what we're doing in terms of our mental health offerings. And I say that not because we need to preempt 
someone who is mentally unhealthy from committing a crime. As I mentioned before, the young man who walked into Rob Elementary was not a criminal until he literally pulled that trigger. He could have gone from being a guy who was just depressed to a guy who was no longer depressed and continued to be a great upstanding citizen in his community. But because he had an AR-15, he was able to turn those thoughts into murdering children. And it's not preempting the mentally ill from getting guns. That's the issue. When I say about mental health, what we need is triage for communities. Unfortunately, school shootings are going to continue to happen until we start changing an idea that you have, B, which is awesome, is like making martial arts compulsory. It's a piece. It's not the fix. It's one small piece that you can be a part of the solution. It would help because it does help for everyone to understand trauma, violence, empathy, being challenged, being pushed mentally and physically, and then how you respond in positive, healthy ways. And it's something that is hard to learn other places outside of a physical confrontation in an in a arena of mitigated violence. Ferg? I would like to say this to the, the parents who are listening. I think the further that we remove ourselves from the basic human interaction process, the more we create a devaluing for life. I know as parents, we want to give our kids an iPhone, an iPad, an Android, a, a laptop. We want to give them all those things early when they're three, four, or five, six years old. I can tell you this in sports like judo or wrestling and football and volleyball, there are no cell phones out on the court. There's none on the field and there's none on the mat. And that's because you, you're closer to the human experience. I think the closer we get to the human experience, the better off that we will be in terms of compassion. What happens is when we watch movies, when we're on these devices, when we do too much TikTok and Netflix and, and all these particular things, we're disconnected from reality and from consequences. So as parents, if you can get back to having dinner with each other at five o'clock, six o'clock, putting the cell phones down, putting the computers down, shutting the, t the televisions off, going out for walks, um, sitting in the backyard um, and just taking some time to just connect with each other and have more human experiences, I think it will be better. And I will end with what my teacher, uh, Ms. Niavarsky said to me in 10th grade. She says, we have two ends joined by a common link with one we sit and the other we think. Success depends on which ones we use, heads we win and tails we lose.